folks over there if, you, if you're interested in joining in. Uh, Tuesday and Saturday, we won't be having group this week. The, the Wednesday group will still be meeting on Romans 3. Uh, I put a little blurb in the bulletin. Uh, if you're interested in prayer partners, uh, each month Terry uh, signs prayer partners. Uh, basically, it's real simple. Uh, she sends out an email. She says, hey, this person's matched up with this person. And then it, the rest of it's on you, right? So uh, you just, hey, uh, Ann and I are prayer partners. How can I pray for you this month? It's that simple, right? And, and then I give her my prayer request. She gives me her prayer request. Uh, if you're courageous, you can pray together. But I think most of the prayer partners just pray on their own. I'm praying for you over here so because I know some of you aren't... Uh, quite comfortable uh, praying one-on-one -on -one quite the same as, as others might be. So uh, so it's really that simple, uh, and uh, we'd love to have anybody participate that would like to be a part of that. So with that, we'll uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll have some worship. Is there no church next Sunday? There will be church next Sunday. I won't be here. Uh, my brother Dave is going to preach. Oh, well, so, it's not on here, and I'm like, oh, we're... Oh, I usually Going don't. on vacation too? <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I usually don't put that in the bulletin for next oh. But But I did put it, send out the email yesterday that had the and links I thought for, it was Dave. for next Sunday. So well, so hey. next next week is the David <laughs> yeah. Show, right? Wow. So, next, <laughs> so next week is the David Show. Wow. So, so David will be leading the Sunday school, Thank and my brother you. David will be leading worship. Uh, or he'll do the preaching. Yes. Yeah, my, my brother David will be doing the preaching. Uh, Thank you. Uh, remind me, Allie will be leading worship. Uh, so many of you are aware that we uh, we give support to Jason and the Chi Alpha <coughs> Ministries. Uh, one of uh, one of the students that he works with is going to lead worship for us next week. So, so with that said, we so please, 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 right, come and give your support, right? Because several of us are going to be gone for a wedding next weekend. And, and so come so that, you know, Amanda can tell you it's much easier to leave worship if there's people out there singing back, right? <laughs> I can tell you it's much easier to preach to faces as opposed to empty seats. So so please come and, and give your support if you're able. Uh, so so we'll be on vacation, but yes, there'll be, there'll be church as normal. As normal as normal can be, right? <laughs> Let's pray. Oh, gracious and loving Father, we just give you praise uh, for this opportunity that we have to come and celebrate your goodness and your grace, uh, to reflect on all that you've done for us through Jesus, to, uh, to just be a, a people who, who recognize that you are worthy of all honor and glory, uh, regardless of what you may or may not do for us. And so we just, we just pray that as we gather here today, that our hearts would be filled with praise for your name, and that you would just... Uh, invite us to come closer to yourself and to uh, to recognize how we can more faithfully live as, as lights in the midst of the dark world that surrounds us. So, Father, we just pray that you would meet us uh, where we need to be met today, if we need comfort or encouragement or challenge, uh, and that you would just uh, draw us a little bit closer to yourself as we come in the name of Jesus, who's taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Um, we're going to read from Psalm 65 this morning. 
What mighty praise, O God, belongs to you in Zion. We will fulfill our vows to you when you answer our prayers. All of us must come to you. Though we are overwhelmed by our sins, you forgive them all. What joy for those you choose to bring near, those who live in your holy courts. What festivities await us inside your holy temple. We begin this morning with, to God be the glory. Would you stand as you are able and join us in song? Good, good father. 
Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to verse 50. I'll be reading from the NASB. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God bless the reading and hearing of his scripture. And may God bless Pastor Dan's message. Uh, over the years, I've officiated a number of... Don't worry, I got it. All right. Over the years, I've officiated a number of funerals, and, and many of those were for people that I'd never met before or people that I really didn't know very well. I might have known of them or run across them somewhere, but didn't know them very well. So my, my standard practice, and, and this is even true of, of those that I know well, is I sit down with the family and I ask them to share some memories, right? Just tell me who they were to you, you know, and, and I'll preface it with something to the effect of, you know, what first comes to mind? Their character, personality, things they like to say. So we don't want to make them better than they were or worse than they were. We want to remember them as they were, so I don't want you to filter, right? Because I can tell whether something needs to go in the service or not, and I, and I want to be able to do that because... The last thing I want is for somebody to come to a funeral and walk out the door thinking, who was he talking about, right? And so, so I don't want them to filter because I told them, I said, you know, you'll be surprised at some of the things that can work their way into service, right? Because the best funerals are those where there's tears, 
over the grief that you're experiencing, but also laughter as you're celebrating their life, right? So I, I kind of preface it with, with don't filter, I'll do all that, and, and you know, I'll determine whether it's appropriate or not. So I'm sitting down with this one family for somebody that I did not know, and I give them this whole spiel, right? And we have a prayer, and uh, I, I'm like, so what's the first thing that comes to mind? And somebody blurts out, stubborn as hell! <laughs> and I'm like, that's part of the service. <laughs> right? Because I knew it's, that's who everybody's going to know, right? Now, I may not know how he's going to work in it, but I knew it was going to be in the service somewhere, right? Because that's how everybody would recognize this person. Uh, perhaps you've known someone for whom it was my way or the highway. How about this one? I always thought I would marry Mr. Wright. I just didn't know his first name would be. Um, you've met people like that too, haven't you? I didn't know that, Amanda was gifted with that. She married Mr. Always Wright, right? Yeah. I'll learn her and her opinion. It may not always be a, a blessing, I suppose. <laughs> Most of us have met people like that where their mind is made up and it's next to impossible to convince them otherwise. Whatever logic, whatever evidence, whatever reasoning you might use, there's just some topics that you're talking with them and it's like talking to a wall. Right? Some people, they simply turn a blind eye to the truth they don't want to see. And you know, in my opinion, that's kind of the epitome of stubborn as hell, isn't it? It doesn't matter what the facts are. I've made up my mind, and you can't change it. Now, as we think about our, our culture today, and I'm probably going to get myself in, in trouble, but I, I, I found it interesting that in our culture today, we have a culture that believes in science while discounting the science they don't want to believe in. Amen. We have a culture that believes in science while discounting the science they don't want to believe in. I, I don't know about the rest of you, but in high school, I took biology. And you know what I learned in biology? There's male and there's female. You know, isn't it interesting that the Bible told me that even before biology did? He created them, male and female, he created them. You know what biology also tells me? Biology teaches me about life. How about this one? For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139.13. Isn't that interesting? We have a culture that believes in science while discounting the science that we don't want to believe. Mm -hmm. Because we can be guilty of ignoring the truth that's right before our eyes when it's not the truth that we want to see. Now, as we think about where we are as a culture today, not only do we ignore the truth that we don't want to see, but we make up a truth that's far from reality. That is stubborn. Now, when we think about ignoring the truth, more pertinent for many of us is, Sometimes we ignore the truth we don't want to see uh, when it's something we have to acknowledge about ourselves that we may not like, right? Such as the fact that we're sinners, we, we fall short, we make mistakes. Uh, sometimes we don't like people to point out the ways that we might be wrong, right? And, and as I think about, uh, it's true of Christians as well as any other, right, uh, a person, whatever religion may be, uh, generally speaking, we don't live up to our own standards, let alone the standards of God, right? And, and the last thing we want is for people to remind us of how we fall short. And yet we fall short. The question is, is are we open to being corrected? Are we open to the truth, even if it's the truth we may not want to see? Now, as we look at our text today, our text begins seemingly innocent enough. In verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign for you. 
Now that sounds pretty innocent enough, right? Teacher is a term of respect, generally speaking, and there is Old Testament precedent for testing the validity of a prophet. And honestly, we even have Old Testament uh, precedent for God offering signs for that matter, right? So it seems innocent enough as we begin the text. Uh, consider, uh, Consider all the signs God gave to Pharaoh. You want an example of somebody who was stubborn, right? So consider all the signs God gave to Pharaoh, which were also signs for the people of Israel at the time, right? So we have Old Testament precedent for signs. Now what we also see with the Exodus account is that uh, it foreshadows for us that there's more to faith than witnessing a miraculous sign, right? So the Pharisees are asking for a sign, but there's more to faith than just asking for a sign. So for instance, two people can witness the same sign and yet respond very differently. So let's go back to Exodus. Pharaoh hardens his heart while others from Egypt decide to leave with the people of Israel. They all saw the same signs. We see a very different response to the signs that they saw. Now, thinking about signs, how many of you have heard of Gideon's fleece from Judges 6? Most of us have heard of Gideon's fleece, right? God comes to Gideon, says, Hail, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, who are you looking at? Right? <laughs> and we go through all the dialogue, and, God, and, and Gideon's like, well, God, if this is really you, then, you know, I'm going to throw out this fleece, and we have wet one day and dry around it, and then the, we flip the order the next day, whichever order that is. It's in Judges 6. You can read it for yourself. We have Hezekiah's response to Isaiah. Uh, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me in 2 Kings? So we see some signs in the Old Testament. God offered a sign to Ahaz. You know what's interesting about the sign God offers to Ahaz? Ahaz says, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to test the Lord. So God offers Ahaz a sign, and Ahaz says, oh, no, no. He, he hides behind piety to hide his unbelief. If you really look at the account, right? He really doesn't have faith, and he says, I'm going to refuse a sign because I don't want to believe it anyway. Huh. Well, that kind of sounds like many in our culture today, doesn't it? So if you just read verse 38, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you apart from the context, then Jesus' response might seem a little puzzling, right? Now, uh, Luke 11, uh, 29 through 32 gives you a parallel account. We'll let you read that one on your own. But Jesus' response might appear a little puzzling because Jesus' response to teacher, we wish to see a sign is, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, Jesus, aren't you being a little harsh? I mean, they just addressed you as teacher, and all they asked for is a sign, and you're calling them an evil and adulterous generation? Background and context matter for understanding, right? This is something that I hope we've drilled into you at Network at this point, is that you can't understand the passage outside of the context that, it, that it's in. So here they use the greeting of teacher to really mask their true intentions, right? Because they're really not being respectful to Jesus. Because as they demand for a sign, they're doing it on the heels of a sign that Jesus just gave. That's the background. That's the context. Now, you might think of it this way. I sure hope I got my years right. All right? So uh, Amanda and I, we started dating in 1989. Right? <laughs> Sophomore year, couldn't drive yet. Yeah, I'll tell you what. Nothing like having your dad drive you to a dance, right? <laughs> so Amanda and I, we started dating in 1989. We got married. I put the wrong date in here. What? I, I know. <laughs> well, say it. 
<laughs> I'm not going to say what's in my notes. We got married in 1995. That's right. Yeah, I put 1996 in my notes. I don't know what I was thinking, right? We got married in 1995, so now i got to read it, right? So, so we got married in 1995, so I guess that means this year will be 28 years, right? So some might say Amanda deserves a crown. <laughs> I'm going to say uh, 28 years probably feels longer to her than it does to me, right? Because she's had to put up with me for all that time. Mr. Always Right. Mr. Always Right. Except for evidently in, in typing, sometimes typos, right? So now how do you think Amanda would respond if I said, you know what, Amanda, I want you to give me a sign that you love me and the last 28 years don't count. <laughs> so not not I want think about because this is what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. I want you to give me a sign that you love me and you can't you can't appeal to anything you've done in the last twenty eight years. The the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're saying, We want you to give us a sign, but the sign you just did doesn't count, the signs you did before that don't count. Nothing you've done before this counts. Give us a sign. That's stubbornness, isn't it? But that's exactly what they're doing in our text. That's why Jesus says, you evil and adulterous generation. The request for a sign is nothing more than a stubbornness that refuses to see the truth. You know, when you're looking for an excuse to not believe, you're sure to find one, despite the evidence. So Jesus just gave them a sign, and how did they respond? Well, let's back up to the background, because I could say, just remember last week's sermon, but I'm not going to be so... <laughs> presumptuous to think that everybody remembers what last week's sermon was. You know, sometimes I can't remember what last week's sermon was. So let's back back up for the background, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, well, what did they hear? They heard the crowd saying, can this be the son of David? Well, why are the crowd saying, can this be the son of David? Well, the crowds are saying, can this be the son of David? Because what do you know? Jesus just healed a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. That just happened. So when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Bezabel, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now they're saying, give us a sign. But we're going to find a way to deny any sign you give us. That's stubborn. If we don't like the truth, then we're going to make up one of our own. You cast out a demon, we'll just say you did it from the prince of demons. So here they come in the text and they say, we wish to see a sign. You mean like casting out a demon of a blind and mute man? Or how about turning water to wine? Or how about healing all kinds of sickness? How about the other demons that I've cast out by this point? How about cleansing leprosy? How about healing paralysis and blindness? How about even raising the dead? Because you know what? By this point in our chronological life of Jesus, he's already done all those things. Right? It's like saying, we want you to give us a sign, but nothing you've done already counts. And not only that, we're going to make up things, right? You only do it by the prince of demons. So they ask for a sign while ignoring the sign Jesus has already given them. Give me evidence, and I'm to, but I'm going to ignore all the evidence you give me. Talk about stubborn. Or I kind of like the Old Testament description. You guys familiar with the Old Testament description? This is a stiff-necked people. <laughs> you know, when we think about faith, it isn't always about the evidence. 
sometimes we turn a blind eye to the truth we do not want to see because that truth doesn't serve our purposes. And so Jesus is confronting them with how their religious activity has masked hearts that were far from God. In fact, we see later, right, Jesus says, you honor me with your lips, but your, far, your, your hearts are far from God. Jesus is correcting their understanding of Scripture. You might remember clear back on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. And he's correcting their understanding of Scripture. Jesus is giving them a different perspective on the heart of God. They accused him of what? Being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, God wouldn't hang out with those kind of people. So you might say Jesus is kind of, well, let's say he's challenging their status quo, and they don't like it. And so they demand Jesus to prove himself, knowing that they plan to not accept any proof that Jesus gives. And so Jesus basically says, I'm not going to play your game. You know, all too often people's reasons for not believing are nothing more than an excuse to evade a truth that they don't want to accept. And that truth is that we're morally accountable to God. I remember a couple of years ago, I did a, a, we spent the whole year on apologetics. And in that year, it was, it was a fun, it was fun diving into tough topics, tough questions, tough scriptures. Uh, it, it was a lot of work, but a lot of fun at the same time. But I remember one of the scientists that I read in that uh, sermon series, I don't remember what his name was, but it was a scientist, and he basically said, all the so science points that the reality of God is greater than, you know, you can't prove or disprove the existence of God, but all the science basically says it's more probably likely than not. But then he goes off and he says, but I don't want to believe that, and so I choose not to stubborn as hell. Many times it's really not about the evidence. It's about evading the truth that we don't want to accept, that we're morally accountable to God. Now, I'm not saying that people do not have legitimate questions or concerns. What I am saying is, if they're not really interested in the answers, if they have no intention in seeking the answers, if they have no interest in what the evidence may be, if they're closed off to what the evidence may be, then perhaps it's really simply an excuse. Perhaps it's just an excuse. So Jesus, Jesus is not asking us for a blind leap of faith. right? He doesn't refuse a sign in demanding blind trust. Quite the contrary, what Jesus is doing is he's calling out their unwillingness to trust despite good reason to do so. Jesus has already given them the signs. And so he says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. Now, Nolan astutely writes, it can hardly be that such a request for a sign is always and everywhere considered to be an evil. The difficulty must be the request in the context of Jesus' ministry as readily available for scrutiny. Given what is visibly present, like the fact he just did a sign, such a request amounts to nothing more than evasion. They're turning a blind eye to the evidence that they already have at hand. So Jesus says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, because uh, we do believe the Old Testament's important, it's there for a reason, it's the foundation for the new, right? If you turn to the Old Testament, uh, read through some of the prophets, and you're going to find this language is very reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets, speaking of Israel as an evil and adulterous people. 
right? And in the context of the prophets, it, it was probably meaning, well, you're not only worshiping God, but you're you're sacrificing to Baal or to Molech or to Asherah, or you've got all this other kind of nonsense kind of stuff going on, right? And that's how it was described in the Old Testament, evil and adulterous. Now, when you think about the community that Jesus is speaking to, it looks very differently. Because guess what they're no longer doing? They're no longer worshiping Baal or Asherah or Molech. They're no longer doing many of these things. They're no long, it looks very differently than what it did in the Old Testament when the prophet said you're an evil and adulterous generation. So some might think, well, Jesus, you must be mistaken. I mean, after all, look how religious we are now. Have you not noticed all of our religious reforms from before, from, you know, since the exile? Haven't you noticed how we rooted out all of that idolatry? Haven't you noticed how strictly and rigidly we observe the law? Haven't you noticed all these restrictions we do so that we don't violate the Sabbath? Haven't you noticed how we fast beyond what's required of us? Do you know the Pharisees fasted twice a week? Do you know where you get Old Testament precedent for that? Nowhere. Right? Because they're showing how religious we are. Look how good we are. We tithe of everything we receive. We pray daily and regularly through the day. And just so you know, we do it where you can see us. We don't have anything to do with sin or sinners for that matter. Don't you see, Jesus, how we've cleaned up ourselves since returning from the exile? What do you mean evil and adulterous generation? Now, this might seem like a silly illustration, but I hope it gets the point across. Does an angry person blow up or do they stuff it down? Does an angry person yell or do they give the silent treatment? Does an angry person act out aggressively or passive aggressively? Now, if you're saying these are trick questions because both can be true, then you nailed it. Right? Depends on the person. One person blows up, another one stuffs it down and acts out passive-aggressively, right? Now, at the root, we have the same thing, right? Anger. But how that anger is expressed is very different. It's the same thing we're seeing in our text. The people may outwardly look very differently than they did in the Old Testament, but inwardly, they're still evil and adulterous at heart. You know, just dressing up our lives with religious activity doesn't mean that our heart is right with God. Uh, just last week, we saw how they took something good, like the healing of a demon-oppressed man, and they ascribed it to evil. Now, we've not gotten there yet. Uh, maybe in the next decade or so, we'll get there. You know, Matthew 23, uh, where Jesus has some uh, strong words there as well, and he reveals that they don't practice what they preach. They put heavy burdens on others that they're not willing to help with. Uh, what they do, they do to be seen, honored, and respected by men rather than by God. We see in chapter 23 where he's going to talk about how their priorities are misplaced, their values are out of whack, they're filled with pride and greed and self-indulgence rather than compassion, generosity, mercy, and justice. You know, the only thing different between this day and the day before the exile was now they have a nice cloak of religion that they're hiding it underneath. Which is why Jesus said, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You've possibly heard the saying before, going to church doesn't make me any more a Christian than sitting in a garage makes me a car. <laughs> I don't know who to describe it to. It's not original to me. You know, it's, uh, but it's, it's true, isn't it? 
There's more to being a part of the family of God than heritage. You know, in their context, uh, being a descendant of Abraham wasn't enough. In our context, the fact that we were born in a mostly Christian nation, and most of us probably to Christian parents isn't enough to make us part of the family of God, nor is just showing up enough. Just as generations before had witnessed signs that failed to translate into faith, so they're failing to acknowledge the signs confirming that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. So in verses 39 and 40, he answers them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given and accept the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, incidentally, some of you are getting concerned at this point because we haven't got very far in the text, right? Yeah, I want to say my audio person left the batteries up here because he's given me an Im implication that he wants me to go along so we can replace the batteries. Wow. Right? I can also shut you off, too. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're spending our most of our time up front, and then we'll show how the other verses come in. Right, so so we should be right on par for normal. You know. Now I gotta find myself again. <laughs> so, uh, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus uses the account of Jonah as a type of foreshadowing his rejection, his death, and his resurrection. And what he's going to say is the resurrection is going to be your your ultimate sign. The resurrection is going to be your ultimate sign that validates your need to trust in me. Now, Jesus is also going to concede in Luke 16, 31, that that's not even going to, be, uh, going to convince some. Because you know what? We have a tendency to ignore the truth we don't want to see. So Jesus gives a veiled prediction of his death and his deliverance from death through the sign of Jonah. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to indicate... And another way why this generation is so evil and adulterous, because as it turns out, the pagans are more receptive to the word of God than the supposedly people of God are. So verses 41 and 42, he continues, the men of Nineveh. Now, I'm guessing some know some about Nineveh, others may not know much about it. Nineveh was a very evil, wicked place. We'll just leave it at that. Nineveh was a very evil and wicked place. God comes to Jonah and he says, I'm sending you to Nineveh. And Jonah says, uh-uh, no way. And he flees and runs the other way until God says, I've got other plans for you, buddy. Right? So I'm sending you to the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Uh, queen of the south would be the queen of Sheba, right? Who's also a pagan, right? Not of the Jewish people. She will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So he says, the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now let me ask you, how many miracles did Jonah do? Zero. For that matter, we have no indication that the people of Nineveh know the background of how Jonah got there either. What do we know of Jonah? He was reluctant. He didn't want to go. He did the bare minimum. He wasn't happy that people responded to his message. I mean, all of intents and purposes, I only wish I could be as, as successful as Jonah was, and he didn't even have a heart for it. He didn't want to do it. He says something greater than Jonah's here. You know what Jesus has done? He teaches with authority and voluntarily. 
He's performing all these miraculous signs. And Jesus has the pure life to go along with it. I mean, in all sense and purposes, he shows a great contrast. But what's the difference? You know what? These wicked people of Nineveh actually listened to Jonah. And here you are, the supposed people of God, and you won't listen to me. Who not only teaches the word of God, but is performing miracles and has the pure life to go along with it. says something greater than Jonah's here. The Queen of South refers to Queen Sheba. Uh, you can check out 1 Kings 10, uh, 1 through 13. Now, in some ways, she's remor more remarkable than the people of Jonah, uh, Nineveh. I should slow down, right? She's more remarkable than the people of Nineveh, right? Think about Jonah went to the people of Nineveh on their turf. The Queen of Sheba sets out on a long, difficult journey to investigate herself. The word of God didn't come to her. She went seeking the word of God. Now, if you actually go and read the account, what you'll find is the queen of, of Sheba, she heard all these accounts of the wisdom of Solomon, and she didn't think it could be true. But you know what separated her from many of our skeptics today? She didn't say, well, I don't believe it's true, so it can't be, and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. She goes and she investigates. She says, well, let's see if the evidence is there. So she sets out on this long, difficult journey to investigate if the reports of Solomon's wisdom are true. So she disbelieved them. She goes off. She evaluates, and she, she acknowledges that she was wrong. She says, surely, surely it's true, right? So she went and was confronted by the evidence and converted by the evidence. And what Jesus is saying is, you know what? She was impressed with human wisdom. Yet you're rejecting divine wisdom in Jesus. Now, what Jesus is doing in this text is very common in Hebrew. It's an argument of lesser to greater, right? So she came from afar for lesser wisdom, but you have greater wisdom that's at your front door, and you refuse to accept it. He says, something greater than Solomon is here. So the Pharisees, they're saying, we want to see a sign, teacher. And Jesus responds with, you're avoiding the call to believe in and follow me. Let's, get, let's just let's, let's tear everything down, and let's just get down to the nuts and bolts of it. It's not a sign that you want. You're avoiding the truth that's right before your eyes. I've already given you signs. You're avoiding the truth. You're avoiding the call to believe and follow me. Now, Jesus is going to illustrate that in these next verses, that on the surface, as I read them, you're going to be scratching your head, and you're going to be thinking, now, how do these things connect? So just bear with me a little bit. Verses 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. You know, what if we come back from vacation and our house is empty, swept, and put in order? I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. Now that part I might have a problem with. And they enter and they dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now don't miss this last line. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now incidentally, I caught that I left out the word evil on the slide. So, But it's there. It's here in the text, right? So also it will be with this evil generation. Now, if we read these verses at face value, we are likely to arrive at the same place as Stag articulates. It's not enough simply to expel the demons or remove physical ailments like blindness. 
God must dwell in one, making him God's temple. It is not enough to receive God's outward gifts. One must receive him. I think that's something that we all understand, right? It takes more than being cleansed of an unclean spirit to be saved. It takes more than a physical healing. It takes more than just witnessing signs. It requires that we invite Jesus in, right? The house has to be filled with the right person. Now, here's the thing. If we read these verses disconnected from what came before and what follows after, uh, we, we likely read them that way, right? But look at the application that Jesus makes at the end of verse 45. So also will it be with this evil generation. That connects it to what just went before. A sign will not be given to this evil and adulterous generation. So we have the exorcism of verses 22 through 29 that we focused on last week. That becomes the backdrop for the statement that Jesus made, you're either with me or you're against me, in verse 30. They've called the good Jesus has done evil, revealing the nature of their hearts, verses 33 through 37. And then they have the audacity to ask for another sign, in verse 38, upon which Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation, verse 39. And then at verse 45, after he gives us this demon leaving and coming back after the house is swept and put in order, he ends it with, so it will be with this evil generation, linking this warning with what came before. Jesus is saying, for all your religious reforms, you know, under Ezra, under Nehemiah, under the rise of the Pharisees, the greater attention that you now give to the law, the strict observance of the law to every area of life, that's the clean, swept, put in order. He says, you're missing the thing that's most important. You've not brought God into your life. You know, we can't work our way into the family of God. We don't do it through religious reforms. We have to invite him in. We have to invite him in. So Israel has been cleansed of idolatry through all this religious reform that has taken place since the return from the exile, if you know the history. But he says, but you've not been filled with spiritual life. And if you're not filled with spiritual life, then the demons still have a place to come in. The latter state, then, is worse than the former. As Wearsby writes, and I quote, It's not enough to clean house. We must also invite in the right tenant. So the people in the Old Testament failed to trust God despite good reason to do so. They were failing to recognize and accept Jesus as the Messiah who had come despite Jesus giving them every good reason to do so. So in a sense, these verses serve as a parable as much as they do about demonology, if you want to put it that way. Saying if you reject Jesus, if you reject what Jesus brings, your latter state will be worse than your former state. Which leads us into the finish, right? You're thinking, all right, we're getting there. I didn't even have to replace the batteries. <laughs> now you have parallels in Mark 3, 3, 31 through 35, as well as Luke 8, 19 through 21, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. Now Luke highlights that Jesus' mother and brothers couldn't reach him because the crowd was so great. Uh, at this point, we see that opposition to Jesus is growing from the religious establishment. 
and it's kind of getting the attention of his family members, right? Now, Joseph is not present because uh, everybody presumes Joseph is, is uh, passed away by this point in time. Uh, we also know that, of course, Mary was Jesus' mother, and we have names for his brothers, uh, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon from Matthew 13, 35. We also see Jesus has unnamed sisters. Now, some of you might be thinking, if you grew up in certain traditions, well, I thought Mary, I thought uh, Mary only had Jesus, and that was all Mary had. We'll just say that's not what the scripture teaches, right? The scripture teaches he had brothers. Now, some might argue, well, maybe that was from a previous marriage with Joseph. You know the problem with that? That would mean that somebody else was entitled to the throne of David rather than Jesus, because it would go to the older son, right? So, we got to be true to what the scriptures teach, not what tradition and some traditions teach. Now, Jesus is not disparaging family here. He is declaring that we have an allegiance that takes precedence and priority over family, right? Not saying family is bad, he's just saying uh, there's something that takes precedence over it, and that's allegiance to God. Now, Jesus doesn't say here that you become my brother, sister, mother by doing the will of my Father. What does he say? He says, you're identified as my family by doing the will of God. Right? It's more than just religious reform, it's more than heritage. You identify my, yourself as part of my family by doing the will of the Father. Now these chapters they've been highlighting, as you think about over the last few weeks, the chronological life, what we've been seeing is this growing opposition to Jesus, but it kind of culminates with this picture of a new family being established around Jesus for those who receive him and follow him. So some, sometimes people wrestle with, what, what is God's will for my life? Let me read this verse for you. John 6, 29, Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God. We could understand that as the will of God. This is the work of God, the will of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That seems pretty straightforward, right? If you're wrestling with what is God's will for my life, right here we have a, a first step. This is the will of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The will of the Father begins with embracing Jesus in faith, the very thing that the Pharisees in our text are refusing to do. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus is pointing us to how we become a part of the family of God. We don't do it by, it's not by heritage, it's not because of what your parents did or didn't do. We don't do it through religious reforms, we don't do it through goodness, our own goodness. We come through Jesus, through faith in him. So Jesus says in our text, he says, to this generation there's not going to be any sign except for one, the sign of Jonah. Right now, when you think about, people come up with all sorts of reasons to not believe. Right. Right? I, I mean, most of us have heard some of them, right? People come up with all sorts of reasons to, to evade the truth, right? So, so they'll say things like, well, the Bible is full of contradictions. And, and you all know how to respond to that, don't you? Name me one. Because so many people will make that claim and they have no idea what they're talking about. And if they give you something that looks like a, a contradiction, I'll show you how to get around it, right? Because, uh, because it's not full of contradictions. There's tensions, there's, you, if you understand it in context. But most people who, who say that as an evasion of the truth, they can't even name one. 
Or how about it's out of date or irrelevant? Well, the Bible's irrelevant. It's out of date. Let me ask you, Jason. Is it okay to murder? I don't think that's going out of date. Do you? Once again, we've got to talk about context, right? And, and how, understanding how it is and how it still speaks to us today. Right? But, but they'll, they'll throw out these things because it's really not about the evidence. It's about evading the truth often. Right? Or, or I don't like what it says about, and fill in the blank, biology, sexuality, morals, fill in the blank. Right? I don't like what it says about. You know what? I don't like what my body is telling me about aging. <laughs> but it doesn't make it any less true, does it? Nope. Truth is not based on what I like or dislike. I don't like the price of gas at the pump. I don't like the inflation at the grocery store. I don't like the hit that my Roth IRA took over the last couple of years. But that doesn't change what the truth is, does it? People come up with all sorts of reasons to not believe. And here's something that, that, you know, if you're witnessing to any of these people, leave all that aside for now, right? I don't care. You know what? So you say the Bible's full of contradictions. So you say, I, I don't care about whether there was a global flood. Or what about Jonah being swallowed by a, a large fish? Let's just leave all of that aside for now. Because you know what? None of that really matters if you're wrong on Jesus. So how about we just start with this one thing, right? Let's just leave all of that aside and let's ask the question, did Jesus rise from the grave? Let's explore the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is true, and Jesus is who he claimed to be and what he claimed to do, then nothing else matters if you're wrong on Jesus. So let's leave all these other excuses aside for now, right? Not to say that we can't ever get back to them, right? Let's leave that aside and let's just ask the question about Jesus. Because if Jesus did rise from the dead, and let me tell you there are compelling arguments for that. In fact, I have books on compelling arguments. I mean, there's a whole list of evidence you can look at. If Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead, and there are compelling reasons to believe that he did, then who he is and what he said about himself is of paramount importance. Because there's no other way to become a part of the family of God except for through him. And there's no way for us to truly live by the will of the Father except for through him. There's no other way to get to the Father except for through him. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's leave all the other things aside. You know, what the Bible says about homosexuality, what it says about biology, what it says about creation, what it says about global, or about floods, what it says about jump. Let's leave all that stuff aside for now. And let's just ask this one question. Do we have evidence... For Jesus being who he said he was, did he rise from the dead? Because if you're wrong on Jesus, nothing else matters. So let's start there. And then we can address other things as we come to them. Because it's through Jesus that we become a part of the family of God. And that's a family we all want to be part of. In your bulletin, there's a communication card. And we invite you to think about how God might be speaking to your heart this morning. And then we encourage you to, to throw that into the offering basket as uh, uh, part of your next steps and as part of your worship. So uh, Jesus said that no sign will be given it, uh, the, this evil and adulterous generation, except the sign of Jonah. 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, so Jesus says, this is the sign that you will be given. His death and his deliverance from death. The resurrection validates the claims Jesus made of himself and what Jesus had come to do. Uh, without the resurrection, his death would be meaningless to us. His life would be just like any other good man or religious leader. But as Paul writes in Romans, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead by the power of the Spirit. So may we not address him with respect, simply with respect as teacher, but may we embrace him as our Savior and follow him as our Lord through our next steps, tithes, and offerings as we recognize that the tomb is empty, right? that he rose from the dead, that he died and rose again, and may the orientation of our lives now be to honor and serve him as we are part of the family of God and we seek to do the will of the Father through him. So I want to remind you that on the night to which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes again. Let us pray. O oh, gracious and loving Father, it is easy to get distracted from the things that really matter. And so often we, we might get lost in all sorts of arguments that, that may not really matter in the end. And as we come to this table, we just ask that you would help us to, to focus upon who Jesus is and what he did for us. And that we would understand that, uh, that that changes everything. So as we come to this table, may we recognize that his death and resurrection was not simply for the forgiveness of our sins, but it was so that he can bring us into your family, and so that we can live accordingly to your will, and that we can be the, the people that you've called us to be. So we invite you to meet with us as we come to this table and to, to grow us from it in Jesus' name. We invite you to come and to, to receive the gift that Jesus has made for you.
About 95 or 96. <laughs> I'll take a tiara. It doesn't have to be a crown. Because, <laughs> you know, I was thinking, um, it, it is funny how we, how we view families here. I think we have so many different points of view on what it means to be a family. And that is shaped by our own experiences, shaped by the people who come into our life and the people who go out of our life. And and I think that, you know, some of us have had good experiences and some of us have had not so good experiences. But I I really in my heart believe that the family of God is a much greater thing than any flesh and blood could ever be for us. I mean blood is thick, but the family of God has always been there for us. And I, I think it's just a wonderful thing. So I, I lean into that. I lean into that family that he has given us. I'm so thankful that he is our father. Speaking of being a child of God, would you please stand and join us as we close with No Longer Slaves.
might notice that once in a while when I send out the network email, I'll put uh, network family, right? Because as Amanda is pointing out, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, uh, you know, our family, our biological family situations may range from one to another, some better than others and some with more struggles than others. Uh, but we all have a family uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, and we've been brought into his family. So go forth showing yourself to be part of the family of God as you seek now to live by the will of the Father, who is embraced and uh, as one who has embraced and follows the Son with the help of the Holy Spirit that he gives us so that we could go forth to live differently than before. Go forth in his name and in his power and as part of his family. Amen. 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 Thank <laughs> you.